Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, and every dollar you give helps keep the podcasts going. As well, you can listen to my other podcasts, From John to Justin and Pucks and Cups, where I look at the history of Canada's Prime Ministers and the history of hockey in Canada, available on all podcast platforms. When Europeans arrived in the 1500s, it began to have an immense impact on the Indigenous cultures and what would one day be Canada. Beginning on the East Coast and moving West over the century, cultures would see significant change as Europeans brought new technology and sought the furs of the continent. For many of the indigenous of the interior of the continent, the first interaction with Europeans would come through representatives of one of the most important companies in Canadian history, the Hudson's Bay Company. Today I'm not looking at the Hudson's Bay Company. I did that back in May when I did a podcast to celebrate the 350 years of the company. Today I'm looking at the interactions between the indigenous and the company and how it changed their culture forever. And while this episode does focus on the Indigenous and their interactions with the company, I am beginning with the creation of the company itself. With the demand for beaver fur increasing as Europeans fell in love with felt hats, two French traders who had heard from the Cree about a frozen sea region that was rich in beaver furs to the north proposed creating a trading company that would gather furs in the interior of the continent, gaining access to the fur resources there. Unable to get French support, the traders went to England in 1665 and convinced Prince Rupert and several merchants and nobles to fund them. The first ships, the Eaglet and Nonsuch, launched on June 3, 1668, to explore trade in Hudson Bay. The Eaglet was forced to turn back, but the Nonsuch arrived in James Bay, the southernmost portion of Hudson Bay, and Charles Fort was founded, named in honour of King Charles II. Spending the winter there and trading furs with the indigenous, the first cargo of fur left for England on October 9, 1669. The successful trade mission led to the creation of the Governor and Company of Adventurers of England, trading into Hudson's Bay. And yes, that was the full name. And it was created on May 2, 1670. Eventually, it would become known simply as the Hudson's Bay Company. 
between 1668 and 1717, six forts would be established in the area, with further inland posts not coming until 1774. Now the proclamation of giving all the land that drained into the Hudson Bay completely ignored the rights of the indigenous who lived in the area, effectively taking their land with the vast majority never even realizing it. The signing of this decision across the Atlantic in 1670 would have long-lasting consequences to the indigenous that exist to this very day. The land had many names for the indigenous people who lived across the landscape, but to the Hudson's Bay Company and the British, it came under the name of Rupert's Land. It covered an area of 7.7 million square kilometers stretching from Baffin Island down to southwestern Alberta, across the prairies, and through northern Ontario and Quebec. The area covered, if it was a country today, would rank as the sixth largest country in the world, between Brazil and Australia, and within this area hundreds of thousands of indigenous lived. For the indigenous, the arrival of the company would result in huge changes in their territories, trade, and culture. The English method of trade differed heavily from the French. The French would establish inland posts at indigenous villages, and traders lived among the tribes, learning their languages and marrying indigenous women. While the French mostly worked with the Huron people in the fur trade, the Hudson's Bay Company worked with the Cree and Assiniboine for the most part, using them as middlemen to get furs from tribes farther inland. Those two nations were the first in the Northwest to also receive firearms from the Europeans, which they used to push back against other communities and expand their territories to keep the fur trade. At the start of the fur trade and the existence of the Hudson's Bay Company, there was some resistance by the indigenous people to assisting the fur trade. A lot of this resistance came from the traditional trading networks between the indigenous groups and the changing of their place in those trading networks. An example of this is seen in the Peel River indigenous, who were the middlemen in a trading network between the Hudson's Bay Company and Western indigenous groups. John Bell attempted to cross the Richardson Mountains in the west to establish new posts with the inhabitants on the other side, but no Peel River indigenous would assist him. When he did find people to help him, they gave him incorrect information about the terrain, and the guides would leave before he ever reached his destination. And this would actually prevent westward expansion of the company for several years. Another major contribution by the indigenous of the Hudson's Bay Company were canoes. The Algonquin had made the birch bark canoe that we are now familiar with, which would carry many times its own weight and freight. The Hudson's Bay Company would use two types of canoe. These were the Montreal Canoe and the North Canoe. The Montreal Canoe was larger, made of yellow birch, and was 40 feet long, allowing for a crew of 10 to 12. The North Canoe was smaller, but light enough two men could carry it, allowing for a crew of eight. For the first century of its existence, the Hudson's Bay Company relied heavily on the indigenous traders who served as the middlemen between those indigenous who were farther inland of the continent. The company was also reluctant to travel into the interior beyond sending their own explorers to map areas. The indigenous groups would prove incredibly important to the company, allowing them to navigate the regions, trade with the other indigenous, and survive in the wilderness of Canada. The indigenous developed their own areas of control, keeping their rivals out, and instead of trapping for food, the indigenous who interacted with the Hudson's Bay Company were now trapping to obtain goods from the company. And while the trapping was vital for the survival of the company, without the indigenous guides or middlemen, it is likely the company would have never succeeded. I would like to look at an important person in the history of the Hudson's Bay Company. Thanedel Thur was born in 1697 
and when she was 16, her party of Chippewans were attacked by Crees, and several people were captured, including Thanadel Thur. After spending the winter with the Cree, Thanadel Thur and others fled, eventually being discovered by goose hunters from the Hudson's Bay Company a year after they escaped. Reaching York Factory on November 24, 1714, she met with James Knight, a director of the Hudson's Bay Company, who was looking for an interpreter to convince the Cree to allow the Northern Indigenous to reach Bayside trading posts to trade furs with the company. The Cree at the time were a significant roadblock for the company in that regard. In 1715, Knight asked Thanadel III to forge a peace between the Chippewan and the Cree. As she was fluent in both languages and English, she was the perfect person to do so. On June 27th, she left with 150 Cree and William Stewart to meet with the Chippewan. Thanadel Thur would translate the agreements between the company and the two indigenous groups, and a peace agreement was reached. Sadly, on February 5th, 1717, Thanadel Thur died of a fever and would receive a ceremonial burial. In order to replace her as a translator, Knight had a great deal of difficulty and eventually spent the equivalent of 60 skins to hire someone else of her caliber. The peace agreement she helped reach would allow the Hudson's Bay Company to expand to the north. In 2000, she was named a National Historic Person. Another significant Indigenous person with the company was Matanabe. He was a Chippewan hunter and leader, who was born in 1737 and served as a trader and representative for the people at Fort Prince of Wales, which was located at the mouth of the Churchill River at Hudson Bay. He would serve as a guide for Samuel Hearn during the explorations from 1770 to 1772, while Hearn was employed with the Hudson's Bay Company. After a smallpox epidemic raged through his people in 1782, and the loss of Fort Prince of Wales to the French, he became deeply depressed with his declined status, especially after the destruction of Churchill Factory that same year. As a main middleman between the Cree and the Hudson's Bay Company, he now lost everything and would hang himself that year and this makes him the earliest recorded northern indigenous man to kill himself. The decision not to found inland forts would lead to problems later with the founding of the Northwest Company that sent its traders into the interior to trade with the indigenous rather than waiting for them to come to Hudson Bay. This intense rivalry between the two companies would benefit the indigenous traders because it allowed them to play the companies against each other for greater returns on the furs. Trapping was typically done in the fall and winter when the beaver pelts were of the highest quality. In the summer months, the indigenous would travel to the trading posts near Hudson Bay to barter their furs for metal, guns, tools, and textiles and food. This is where we get the point blanket, which has become an iconic symbol of both the company itself and Canada. The blanket was such a huge part of the trade with the indigenous that by 1700, point blankets accounted for 60% of the trade between the indigenous and the company. The indigo stripes woven into the blanket identify its finished size rather than its value related to beaver pelts. The arrival of the indigenous traders was also seen as a high point for the year at the company forts, with it becoming a ritual called the Trading Ceremony, with an interaction between the chief trader and the leader of the indigenous group who traded on behalf of the interior indigenous. The ceremony would begin with the arrival of the canoes and the leader of each expedition would be received by the chief factor while the furs were being unloaded. The chief trader would then introduce the leader of the traders and all would share a ceremonial smoking of a pipe. One of the leaders would eventually speak relating the story of the journey, how many canoes and men took part, and how many fur were gathered. The leader would then ask how the English were 
and state that he was glad to see them. The chief factor would then respond, saying that he had plenty of trade goods now and was happy to see them and eager to trade with them. The pipe would then be shared once more. Leaders of the trading groups were not always the best hunters, but they were the ones most adept at communicating with Europeans, and they were valued for their trading skills by other indigenous hunters. Typically, the Hudson's Bay Company managers often gave the trappers European coats to set them apart from other trading hunters. One of the biggest changes that would come for the indigenous was the fact that the company changed their culture from what it was traditionally to one that was reliant on manufactured goods and food from the company for survival. Many indigenous would move beyond their traditional territory to find the fur-bearing animals that the company wanted, and to be in a better position to trade with the company. As a result of this, it led to some indigenous groups getting into conflict with each other as territories began to change. Another major impact, and one that I'm going to be looking at in a future episode in January, would be the infectious diseases that the European traders brought with them that the indigenous had no immunity to. Smallpox and tuberculosis would rage through the indigenous communities, not just killing individuals, but altering their entire culture and wiping out entire communities. Those who carried traditional knowledge and occupied important positions in the community were often hit the hardest, resulting in the death of vast amounts of cultural knowledge and the creation of power vacuums within indigenous nations. In addition, early on, fur traders introduced alcohol into indigenous communities, which had a terrible effect on these communities. And it was not until the mid-1800s that the company under Governor George Simpson attempted to prevent alcohol being used in the fur trade. When the fur trade in the company arrived in British Columbia in the 19th century, the population of the indigenous in what would one day be the province was about 200,000 to 400,000. By 1900, there were 25,000. The first epidemic to hit the future province in the 1770s was smallpox. In 1782, 60% of indigenous in one nation were killed by smallpox, and in the 1840s, measles spread through many indigenous BC communities. In 1882, 70% of the indigenous in British Columbia were killed in the last major smallpox epidemic. The issue for the company was that the fur trade and their company itself could not operate without the help of the indigenous. Their knowledge of the land and its animals was vital to the profits of the company, and the company knew that it had an impact on the indigenous, and the deaths of the indigenous from diseases was noted in company reports. In 1782, Matthew Cocking in York Factory wrote about the diseases killing the indigenous, writing, quote, I believe never a letter in Hudson's Bay conveyed more doleful tidings than this. Much of the greatest part of the Indians whose furs have formerly and hitherto brought to this place are now no more, having been carried off by the cruel disorder, the smallpox. But what is worse, several of the Indians who brought what little we have got are since dead. Eventually, in 1796, the company started to take the disease impact on the indigenous seriously and gave vaccinations as soon as a vaccine was created. To work with the indigenous, the Hudson's Bay Company also started to look to the French. Thomas Hutchins, an officer with the HBC, would write, quote, The Canadians have great influence over the natives by adopting all their customs and making them companies. James Isham, a governor of York Factory in the 1700s, would note in his writings that the marrying of an indigenous woman was a great help to engaging them to trade, often called the custom of the country. The leaders of the company headquartered in England, though, did not see it this way, 
and there was a complete ban on any sort of intimacy between the men who worked for the company and indigenous women. The rationale of the leaders of the company in preventing intimacy was that it was not what British men should do and that it would impact profits. Of course, even with the ban, enforcement was minimal, and most officers and governors turned a blind eye to traders interacting with indigenous women. Eventually, the company relaxed its restrictions as it saw the benefit of allowing groups to mix together. Unfortunately, many of the men saw the relationships with indigenous women as just something for a time and not legal in any way. Governor George Simpson, one of the most important governors in the history of the company, was a terrible example of this. From 1820 to 1830, he would father five children with four different indigenous women, often pushing one woman aside because he found another that attracted his eye. In one case, he gave the following instructions to the people he passed the woman off to, saying, quote, If you can dispose of the lady, it will be satisfactory as she is an unnecessary and expensive appendage. In writing to a friend, he would write, quote, I see no fun in keeping a woman without enjoying her charms, but if she is unmarketable, I have no wish that she should be a general accommodation ship to all the young bucks at the factory, and in addition to her chastity, a padlock may be useful. Not all traders acted this way. My favorite explorer, David Thompson, was married to Charlotte Small, a Métis woman, for 58 years. They traveled together mapping millions of square kilometers and had 13 children together. Thompson is a good example with his marriage considered to be the longest documented marriage in pre-Confederation Canada. Thompson always insisted that his wife be named in all of his reports and they would pass away within only a few months of each other. Other men saw their indigenous wives as their true wife. William Flett, a master canoeman with the company, left all of his money to his indigenous wife. Van Kirk also relates the story of a Cree woman named Pawpitch, who was married to Humphrey Martin. When she passed away on January 24, 1771, he was gripped with sadness, stating, My poor child becomes motherless. David Harmon married his Cree wife, Elizabeth, in 1805, writing in his diary, quote, The union that has been formed between us has been cemented. We have wept together over the early departure of several children, and especially our beloved son. We have children still living, who are equally precious to us both. Interestingly, Harmon was English, but he spoke to his children in Cree and his wife in French. The company, while allowing the relations between traders and indigenous women, still made things difficult for maintaining a relationship. Workers for the company were banned from settling in Rupert's land until they stopped working for the company. As a result, most went back to England, and the company also banned employees from taking their indigenous wives and children with them. The company would also ban all indigenous people from traveling on their ships to England. Women in the fur trade provided an immense benefit for many reasons, as a Diné guide to Samuel Hearn would state, saying, quote, One of them can carry, or haul, as much as two men can do. They also pitch our tents, make and mend our clothing, keep us warm at night, and in fact, there is no such thing as traveling any considerable distance or for any length of time in this country without their assistance. Despite their impact on the fur trade, and in forging relations between indigenous groups and helping the company expand, the names of the indigenous women were rarely recorded. From these relationships, though, a new culture was created, the Métis, who were often called the children of the fur trade. The Métis would begin living as trappers by the end of the 1700s, selling furs to the Hudson's Bay Company, the Northwest Company, and the American Fur Company, 
and from these early trappers, a definite and strong culture would emerge that exists to this very day. In 1821, following the Pemmican War, the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company merged. Many of the forts in the interior that the companies had operated were then closed because they had become unprofitable. This would lead to a terrible impact on the indigenous, who were now reliant on the fur trade for their survival. The coming decades would see massive declines in the power of the indigenous in the interior of the continent as the Hudson's Bay Company declined in influence and the Canadian government began to push for the land that the indigenous once occupied. The HBC at this time also became more disdainful of the indigenous as they grew more comfortable in the inland regions of the continent and relied less on indigenous knowledge. The aforementioned Simpson would write in 1821 that the indigenous, quote, must be ruled with a rod of iron, to bring and to keep them in a proper state of subordination. In the past, the indigenous would gather furs in the winter, and then work as boatmen and canoemen in the summer months. When the company began to convert to steam-powered freighters, all those jobs were lost. As well, game began to be depleted, making it harder for the indigenous to make a living with the company. The detrimental impact of the Hudson's Bay Company on the indigenous would be seen by the wider world during a 1927 Arctic trip taken by Group of Seven artist A.Y. Jackson and his friend and the co-discoverer of insulin, Sir Frederick Banting. They began to realize that the crew and passengers on board the Hudson's Bay Company paddlewheeler, the SS distributor, were spreading the influenza virus down the Slave and Mackenzie rivers, devastating the indigenous populations of the north. Upon returning back to Montreal, Banting spoke with a reporter at the Toronto Star under the agreement that his statements about the Hudson's Bay Company would be off the record. Instead, the conversation was published and it reached to Australia and Europe. Banting was extremely angry about this as he had promised the Department of the Interior that he would make no statements to the press without clearing it with them first. In the interview, Banting told journalist C.R. Greenaway, that the fox fur trade in the north always favoured the company and not the indigenous. The article would say, quote, For over $100,000 of fox skins, he estimated that the Eskimos had not received $5,000 worth of goods. Banting would go on to trace this treatment to health, which was consistent with reports made by the RCMP officers that suggested the Inuit were only eating flour, biscuits, tea and tobacco provided by the company in trade for furs. The Hudson's Bay Company Fur Trade Commissioner at the time called the remarks false and slanderous, and the governor of the company met with Banting a month later and demanded a retraction. Banting said that while the reporter had betrayed his confidence, he would not retract the statement because he did feel the company was responsible for the deaths of Inuit through supplying the wrong kinds of food and introducing diseases into the population. In his report to the Department of the Interior, Banting would state that the infant mortality was high because of the undernourishment of the mother before birth, that the foods of the traders were causing decay in indigenous teeth, and that the gravest threat to the Inuit was the transfer of his culture from the race long hunter to that of a dependent trapper, stating, quote, White flour, sea biscuits, tea and tobacco do not provide sufficient fuel to warm and nourish him. Well into the 20th century, the Hudson's Bay Company operated a hundred stores in indigenous communities. These stores set low prices for furs and high prices for goods, which kept the indigenous inhabitants of the communities in a state of constant debt. In 1970, during the 300th birthday celebration of the Hudson's Bay Company, 
the National Film Board released a documentary from Indigenous filmmaker Willie Dunn called The Other Side of the Ledger, which I will play a clip from here. Indians are the lowest income earning group in Canada. Three quarters of the Indian families earn less than $2,000 per year. One third of the Indians are totally dependent on welfare. The infant mortality rate is more than twice the national average. Life expectancy, 36 years, is one of the lowest in the world. In short, life for us has become worse since the arrival of the white man. But what of the Hudson's Bay? How does the Honorable Company fare today? The Bay is proud possessor of a large chain of department stores throughout the country and has a yearly turnover, which has reached $500 million. But it has not forgotten its original trading partners, most stores carry our handicrafts. And of course the company still deals in furs. Most of the wild pelts that go to make up these coats come from the north, where the trappers are still the Indian and the Eskimo. The price the company pays per pelt is low and the average trapper earns only $500 a year. In other words, his yearly income is equivalent to the markup on a single coat. But if the company won't pay a better price, why don't we take our furs to another buyer? This is a company trading post in Shamatawa, Manitoba one of over a hundred in Indian and Eskimo communities scattered throughout the North. Almost invariably, the company store is the only store, the only place we can sell furs and buy what we need from the outside world. This virtual monopoly means that the company can even now set the prices of goods it sells, and the prices are high. Many items cost double what they do in the South. Why is it that the lowest income earners in Canada have to pay the highest prices for the goods they buy? We have a standard markup for every item we sell. The standard markup is computed on the markup that is generally accepted for the chain stores in the large centers. And to give you an illustration, a pound of potatoes in Winnipeg, say, costing five cents, will land at Oxford House at 20 cents. Now, this is a terrible difference. It's all in the freight. I challenge anybody on our markups. The worst result of this policy is that the highest freight costs tend to affect the most needed items. The things you buy more, that's where they put the prices on. And the things you buy less, you buy less. That's where they knock the prices out. The high cost of food and the low payment for furs are not the only points of concern. The Bay Store is more than a place to buy and sell. For example, it is usually the local post office 
with not altogether satisfactory results. My brothers and sisters get their welfare checks uh, through the mail, and so my brothers and sisters tell me, and I have no reason to, to disbelieve what they're saying, that uh, the Hudson Bay manager often uh, simply gets them to sign their welfare check right there at the post office, and they're never allowed to take it out, and then simply will shop for the remaining of their goods at high prices in the store. They're not even allowed to go and shop at the co-op store. I will deny that completely and totally. If we have a man that will do that, he will not be in our organization tomorrow. We get the mail from Sodak or any other uh, for buyers, you know, sending the price, list prices, you know. And the bay manager would put it in a garbage can and burn it. And these, these were supposed to be caving out to the trappers. I've seen it happen more than once. High prices and low income lead to debt. Every customer's name and number is on file. He is almost always allowed credit, but this makes him more dependent on the company. Because of his low earning capacity, it is virtually impossible for the Indian to pay the company back in full. Perpetual debt binds us firmly to the store. And having no money, we have to rely on the bay manager for further credit to buy traps to hunt and food to eat. Today, the point blanket is considered part of Canadian culture, but for the indigenous people, it represents something else, colonization. Kent Mockman, a Cree artist, uses the point blanket in a series of paintings called Shame and Prejudice, a story of resilience, with the blankets representing, quote, the imperial powers that dominated and dispossessed indigenous people of their land and livelihood. A Shinanabe artist, Rebecca Belmore, created a video art piece called The Blanket, which features Winnipeg dancer Ming Hong rolling down a snow-covered hill in the blanket. Belmore states regarding that piece that the blanket, quote, is an object of beauty, a collector's item that belongs to the Hudson's Bay Company's history. It is for many indigenous people still viewed as a trade item that once contained the gift of disease. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Canadian History X and my look at the Indigenous and the Hudson's Bay Company. If you want to reach me, you can. Just go to craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. In addition, you can support the podcast like I said. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Phil Maynard, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. You can find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, Canadian Geographic, FirstPeoplesOfCanada.com, the BC Learning Network, Wikipedia, Indian Trappers and the Hudson's Bay Company, Maclean's, HBC Heritage, Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada, Waskanagish.ca, Shaping Canada, 
the Hudson's Bay Company, Royal Charters, Rivalries, and Luxury Hats in the North American Fur Trade. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.